contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today, on the lab report, Dr. Kelly Starrett. Yeah, he's a mobility expert. Mobility? Yep. What is that? We'll find out. Okay. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. This is going to be a good one. Yeah. I'm excited. I think we need like... I'm ready. The Tony Robbins rebounder to jump up and down before the show. We need that. Yeah. Hello. Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. Welcome to the Lab Report, sir. Welcome, everyone, to the Lab Report. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Appreciate it. Oh. If you like being here, Patty's going to tell you what you can do Aww. in a second. But first, let me just say, this is a podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, integrative therapeutics, and today, mobility. That's but, right. But aside from that. I think people should first subscribe to this podcast. That is your first step. Right. You should hit the subscribe button, rate and review, leave us some feedback there. That yeah. would be awesome. And if you left feedback there and you're like, man, I've got more feedback Ooh. to give. Yeah. You can email that feedback at podcastgdx.net. Podcast at gdx.net. That's right, because this is going to be a really big show, to Michael's point. We're talking about mobility today with the famous Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm going to start by touching my toes here. Give me a second. You all right? Nope. Did you hurt anything? Yep. All the things. I'm so sorry. Well, the good news is that we have just the person for you. It's Dr. Kelly Starrett. He's actually the guy who kind of is the reason we even talk about mobility in general. Which is pretty great. Yeah. It's always great when you get the guy who started everything. You always get the guy. And he, in fact, if you go to the gym and a lot of the movements that people do in exercise or in gyms, he kind of designed them and created them. That's incredible. Right? He also happens to be an author. Right. He's written several books that are amazing. And he works with numerous uh, professional athletes, famous people. Yeah, he's all over the internet and YouTube. He's very engaging and fun to, to listen to and to watch. And we're just honored that he agreed to be on the show today. So not surprisingly, super excited. Yeah. Let's just go ahead and talk to him. Call him. Michael, I am so excited. Me we too. have Dr. Kelly Starrett here. Uh, Dr. Kelly Starrett is a coach, physical therapist, author, and speaker. Along with his wife, Juliet, Kelly is co-founder of The Ready State. The Ready State began as Mobility Wad in 2008 and has gone on to revolutionize the field of performance therapy and self-care. Kelly received his Doctor of Physical Therapy degree in 2007 from Samuel Merritt College in Oakland, California. Kelly's clients include professional athletes in the NFL, NBA, NHL, Major League Baseball. He also works with Olympic gold medalists, Tour de France cyclists, world and national record holding Olympic lifting and power athletes, CrossFit Games medalists, ballet dancers, military personnel, and competitive age division athletes. So that's everyone. <laughs> Kelly is the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He also co-authored with his wife, Juliet, the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Deskbound. His latest book, Waterman 2.0, offers water sport athletes a comprehensive guide to optimized movement and pain-free performance. Cool. Welcome to the Lab Report, Yeah, welcome. Kelly. Thank you for joining us. 
I am thrilled to be here with you deep nerds. And let me just say <laughs> straight out that you all are all completely aligned with how we think about the problems of modern society. So I can't wait to get into it. Yay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, for people who maybe if there's anyone out there who is not familiar, they live in a cave, maybe. But it, you've worked with some high-profile profile athletes and celebrities as an expert in mobility, movement, human performance, and you're kind of the reason why mobility is even used in professional sports. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about how you developed the concept of mobility into what you now call the ready state? Well, you know, what's interesting, of course, is that we get to spend a big chunk of our time in high-performance environments which is uh, notable only because it is, uh, I'll quote a new Franz Bosch book, who is probably one of the leading thinkers about motor learning right now. And he says, you know, there's less variation in sprinting than there is in waltzing. Like waltzing, and, and there's more kinds of waltzing than there's different kinds of sprinting. Mm -hmm. And that is shorthand for, let me decode that for you, <laughs> is that in high intensity environments, in high pressure environments, patterns and behaviors become imminent very clearly. So if you want to see how robust a system is, you stress a system. That's, right. that's how it is. And so if we add speed or load or competition demand or metabolic demand or chi-respiratory demand, we really can quickly understand what's going on with how people move and we can really understand what our best practice is. And, you know, you can probably walk any way you want to with your feet turned out and high heel shoes for a long time but you certainly can't do that fast and you certainly can't cut and you can't jump and you, you know, so what we tend to say is, yeah, it probably doesn't matter at sometimes these low iterative experiences, but best practice is really indicative of, or, or, or conducive to our environments where we really end up uh, making the invisible visible quickly. So we have always taken this approach where the end all be all is actually not working with the Navy or, working at these high level populations of literally every sports team you can think of, like the all blacks or the, uh, the Houston rockets. Mm -hmm. What we think is those places really inform what our best practices are. And then the goal is to take that, that formula one concept and actually have it apply towards the average people like me, the moms and dads, the mm -hmm. people who are really just trying to go through the world so that, Sport isn't just circus, but it's a living laboratory where we can stress test ideas, we can understand what's going on, we can sort of understand inputs and outputs. And that's honestly why when, when people raise their, you know, their, the ire of like the biopsychosocial model, you know, we have to think about people as, as contextually human experiences and, and, and really dynamic beings. I was like, yeah, yeah, you mean sport. Because, right. you know, if, if you don't sleep, if you don't eat, if you don't feel like you're part of the tribe, if you don't feel supported, if you, if you don't warm up and cool down, we see what the results are. And I think what's really interesting then is trying to parse out sort of this one aspect of musculoskeletal care and really trying to reframe the narrative about who owns what and who is responsible for what and is pain a medical problem well it certainly can be but most of the time it's not it's just information or as one of our friends um, from stop chasing stop chasing pain says um you know it's a request for change huh. and so what we've tried to do with the ready state is say hey look everyone knows 
but vital signs are, but why don't we have movement vital signs? Yeah. Hmm. And by the way, there is good technique in being a skilled human. And again, if you're moving slowly, if you're doing the elliptical machine and bicep curls, there's less technique involved. But if you want to run fast or jump or cut or, or take on any of the problems that we see in modern society, we're going to have to have this greater conversation about adding the skill back into being a human, which means I have to put my phone away at night. Mm-hmm. I have to get you know more than seven hours of sleep. I need to eat whole foods. I, I have to be thinking about my sun exposure. Mm-hmm. Those are all skilled behaviors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know what's interesting, like here in functional medicine, we always talk about getting to that root cause of disease. And what you're talking about here is just basic mobility. I love that that pain is just the request for change. Have you? What's your experience with functional medicine? Do you work with other functional medicine practitioners or do you have any experience in this? That's a great question. And uh, I wanted to speak from my own family's experience that we have several immediate functional medicine docs that have helped locally here in, in Northern California who have changed the lives of my own family and changed the lives of people who are, who are getting, well, let's just say uh, typical medicine didn't serve them very well. Mm-hmm. No, and for the full caveat that my stepfather was a, uh, an army colonel and uh-huh. a Kaiser physician uh-huh. and trained as a DO. Yep. And comma, Kaiser's amazing. I had a, I had a baby who was born uh, six weeks early, you know, and uh-huh. we had top care at UCSF. My wife is... It had breast cancer last year and we had incredible care, catastrophe, general practice, but nuance, not so much. Juliet lost seven, you know, had seven blood transfusions after uh, our baby was born a little bit early, yeah. was sent to preview. And she basically boned out her, burned out her bone marrow and she was already anemic already and battling iron deficiency as a kid and da da da. Suddenly her hematocrit is very low mm-hmm. and her ferritin is very low and everyone's like, oh, just take some iron. We're like, you know, that's not doing it. Mm-hmm. And it's not until we get into the genetics, it's not until we get into the behavior, not until we get into the real blood panel. The blood tells us everything that we can begin to really understand the and realize the, the promise of personalized medicine and the nuanced approach, which is, hey, I just don't want to feel okay. You know, like Juliet's hematocrit was like, at the bottom, mm-hmm. at the bottom of the functional range. And you know, this is a woman who's a three-time world champion athlete. She is a rower at college. She is a savage, my wife, comma. <laughs> yeah. You know, she's like, hey, living down here at the bottom isn't good enough. Like I'm I'm getting out of breath going upstairs. I feel terrible. My energy's awful. My B vitamins are in the hole. And they're like, but you're in the functional range. So what are we talking about? You know, and I'm like, right. no, there's a gap there between what's possible and what's real what's actual. Yeah. So I'm and a the, huge fan. Yeah. Great, great. And the endless sort of uh, approach and attempt to get to optimal, right? That's that's kind of the difference is instead of dealing with disease, we're talking about how do we get to optimal? And I think that's also what you're talking about from a movement standpoint. Yes, yes, yes. And I really appreciate you making that connection because, you know, the greatest, if you want to raise my ire and you want to just <laughs> set me off, if I see someone right within functional limits or within normal limits, I'm like, what? what? Yeah. Like, right. Why did I memorize all of those shoulder ranges of motion? Why, yeah. you know, what, why, are, why is it okay for us to say, well, you know, you can do your bra, you can, you know, activities of daily living are fine for you, but, you know, God forbid you ever fall on that arm or want to swim or do something interesting. And, uh-huh. and then really the failure to appreciate the fact that there is a relationship between incomplete mechanics and tissue robustness. Because what we're doing when we, 
when we turn off light switches of capacity, like we dim the room, yes, we can read, but what ends up happening is we have tissues working in suboptimal ways that aren't, can't be loaded suboptimally. That, and let me give you a sort of a, let's spin back out and take a case study. Yeah, it doesn't matter how you walk and you can be, have a crappy overextended pelvis and, and, and until you're a girl who's, you know, 17 to 23 and you're tearing your ACL at eight times the rate of men and kids under 14 are tearing their ACLs at four, uh, up 400% over the last 10 years. Right. And all of a sudden we're like, whoa, 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 what's going on? Well, that, that, uh, okay, you got by, it doesn't really matter. I don't know how to fix it. It's not appropriate for our, our Western medicine model because it's not disease care and it doesn't trigger pain is exactly what we're talking about versus saying, hey, this is really what movement practice, what physiology, what the range of motion says about what is possible for the humans. And when we, there's real this disconnect. And so you guys know that, um, sorry, you people know that if you want <laughs> to, uh, you know, a, an excellent test for mor morbidity and mortality is can you sit cross-legged on the ground and stand up without using your hands, right? That's mm -hmm. a simple, well-validated well test. Predicts fall, predicts, you know, all of those things. Well, that's like a low range of motion test. Like you don't even have to have ankle range of motion or hip range of motion. They're not even full, just some. And that test blows people away. They can't lower themselves to the ground. They can't get up off the ground without using their hands. And what we see is, you know, this range of motion, this mobility piece. And by the way, we'll define mobility as, do you have the native tissue extensibility to achieve this shape? And do you have the skill to express it under various conditions, right? That's really what I mean. Like mm -hmm. there's a there's a skill part and there's a just a, a tissue stiffness part or a mechanic part. Got it. And mm -hmm. you know, suddenly when we give that context, when we help people to identify, you know, that if we can restore your position, we restore your function. And that has been always the heart of what we're trying to do. And we don't have to get it right right away. It's not like you take some boron and then everything changes. You guys, <laughs> you know, you understand that, right? Right. right. You know. And uh, I started taking dim, and today I'm I'm better. I think mean, it takes a minute for the system to catch up. Yeah. Right. But but what I will say is we haven't empowered people to understand the implications of their sedentary lifestyles, of their poor movement health, mm -hmm. and then we have to have a conversation about tissue quality. And it turns out, I mean, the physical therapists that I used to work with, the masters had this old saying, the PPP, the piss poor protoplasm, uh -huh. right? And what you would say is, man, you are, your tissues just aren't that rad. They don't load. They don't, they don't transmit load. They, you know, they don't handle forces very well. So we have to talk about gut health and we have to talk about whole food nutrition. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about systemic inflammation. We have to talk about hydration and sleep and stress. If I'm going to talk about the ways to make the person more durable and more anti-fragile, or at least tap into those anti-fragile characteristics which we, with which we're all endowed. Cool. Okay. You're speaking our language, Kelly. Yeah, this is awesome. Sure. Well, as part of what you're trying to get at here as far as optimizing someone's mobility, you wrote this best-selling book entitled Becoming a Supple Leopard. Mm. What, what, what does supple leopard mean? What do you mean by that? That's a great question. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so two things. One is, uh, you know, this... I had this friend in the Navy who was a, a, a ninja Navy SEAL. Okay. And he uh, used to say, he's like, Kelly the leopard never stretches. 
you know, and he was, huh. he was using this. And I was like, dude, this is leopard apologetics here at the best. Right. <laughs> and I was like, one, there's some, some type one error in your thinking, Andy. One, you're not a leopard. I don't know if you noticed that or not. <laughs> and, and two, why don't you have access full physical, like on demand access to your phys- physiology? Like, why do you have to activate your glutes and do these dynamic warm up routines? Why, why can't you just touch your toes or put your arms over your head or take a full breath? Like, why do we have to give people forced respirometers in the hospital and remind them to breathe? What, what's going on here? Why, why are we, you know, and I suspect it's because no one at where we live in an environment that shapes our behaviors mm-hmm. and be, movement behavior is one of those things. And Wolf's law, I mean, Julius Wolf, I mean, early on was describing bones, but he might as well have been describing any aspect of the tissue system, even neuroplasticity, even, even, neural paring down like use it or lose it mm-hmm. and your your body is so efficient at being like oh we're never going to put arms overhead well let's just stop caring about that yeah right and um you know and so you know becoming a supple leopard was the idea of hey <clears throat> you know we actually have this miraculous really robust system that that responds to load and and i think that's really part of the magic here is one is saying helping people to identify some movement minimums for themselves Mm -hmm. so that they can improve their, restore their mechanics and and frankly have more movement choice. And if we look at the sort of new uh, best understanding of of complex motor theory, motor learning right now, what we understand is your brain, and we'll start with the assumption that everyone can appreciate, Mm -hmm. your brain is the most sophisticated structure in the known universe. It is incredible. Mm -hmm. But your brain will perceive and shut down movement solutions to you that are not available to your tissues. So if your ankle range of motion is stiff, you have shut down weak feet, stiff feet. By the way, the Russians say you're as old as your feet and the Chinese huh. say you're as old as your spine, hmm. right? It's interesting that in out of these traditions, people start to realize, man, having a spine that moves well is really crucial to the health of the nervous system, the, the breathing of the human, the, the road rotation and function and then you see this feet but if you're if your feet are stiff one of the things that we know is that your center of balance your center you know is going to be highly off and when you trip over that you don't have movement choices to self-write the, the the sensory motor information from your brain da, 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 da. shorthand for why doesn't your ankle work like an ankle because we have some pretty good data about what the ankle should be able to do mm-hmm. right you should have 23 degree 20 to 30 degrees of dorsiflexion in, in a flex position and when the hips extended in that long lever shape, you should have 10 degrees. Hmm. And the question is, why do you think you're special in two and a half million years of evolution that you don't need that range of motion? Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, and you know, I'm wondering, cause our audience is a lot of functional medicine clinicians and um, I'm just thinking with regard to everything that's going on right now in current events, we're going to oh. have this influx of patients coming in who maybe haven't been as mobile, haven't been as active. And if we're just talking about the baseline of getting them moving, what are some things that the physicians should keep in mind with their, with their uh, prescriptions of, of movement from a mobility standpoint? Does that make that's sense? Such a, yeah, that's a, such a great question. And, um, Let's let's pan back for a second. And say a an, a typical physician will, uh, and of course, no, there's no one typical physician or typical physical therapist, etc. But fifty percent of this is from Stanford when I was there. Fifty percent of the problems of a physician will see are musculoskeletal nature. So hmm. that's that's like off the course, right? Yeah, right. So 
So now you have six or eight minutes. I forget what the data is about how long to make that. You know, I'm always like, did, did your did your doctor watch you run? Because you went you presented with a knee problem, right? For right. running. And uh, you know, well, she doesn't get paid and doesn't have the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a misuse. So when we're looking at behaviors around around just saying, hey, look, here's here are our non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. And so if I was gonna create a, a simple movement map for every physician listening. First of all is I need to see your sleep and I think it's really easy to track sleep and I don't want you to become obsessive for the rest of your life, but I don't believe that you're actually sleeping what you, how much you say you're sleeping. So we think anything under seven hours is a cutoff. This is from another physician, Kirk Parsley, who's a sleep expert from the Navy. Mm-hmm. And he says anything sub seven is you're in threat mode and survival mode. And mm. eight is our baseline for health. And, and he does, it doesn't matter. I know we, people love to point out like, well, Bill Clinton only slept four hours. And I always point out, well, Bill Clinton died and he had a heart attack and died. And then we brought him back. Uh And um, so the idea here is you cannot escape. You cannot cheat your physiology and to get seven to eight hours of sleep, you may need to be in bed eight and a half to nine hours. And you will only know that when you begin to track. And then in that tracking, you'll start to see those relationships between late afternoon caffeine consumption, early out, uh, evening alcohol consumption, THC, Ambien, right? You'll start to see that present stimulant cycle emerge. Mm-hmm. You'll, you really will begin to realize that, hey, I, I need to start preparing myself for bed a little bit earlier and develop a routine of, of downregulation, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't, I don't trust anyone. And when someone presents with persistent pain or chronic pain, my first behavioral intervention is to get sleep on track because I actually huh. can't tell what's going on because the system is so stressed. Yeah. So second is you have to walk 10 to 12,000 steps a day. And for, on a bad day, sure, it's 8,000 steps. That's fine. But your goal is to max out and, and hoard movement. And that's not about steps. It's honestly just about movement. So if we're looking at creating enough non-exercise activity, to accumulate enough fatigue so we can actually sleep or we're talking about decongestion or lymph circulation or mechanical loading of the tendons and ligaments of your feet. I don't care what your mechanism is. This is our baseline and it helps us begin to solve complex problems that are, that are, as you know, as functional medicine experts are tightly coupled. These systems are sometimes hidden from us and Mm -hmm. turning one, one wrench, a small, you know, small hinges swing big doors, as we say. And, and this idea that, you know, hey, you're not moving enough and not sleeping enough, I can't even tell what's happening now. And you're presenting in these with this, you know, hodgepodge of, of compensations. And so let's, let's simplify the system. The, sec- the, the next thing I would say on there is, you know, <laughs> do you feel safe? Do you feel loved? That's, a, that's, a, that's tricky. Uh-huh. Um, but the next one on that is, hey, I need you to probably do some work on the ground a little bit. And one of the things that uh, there's a, a fantastic writer named Philip Beach. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called Muscles and Meridians, which I highly recommend for this group of people. Okay. And do you remember how gnarly the embryology was at <laughs> school? And- <laughs> I do. Yep. So if you read this book, you would have been like, oh, I care. No wonder the Wolfian Ridge is so important. And oh, I totally get it. Yeah. And so you can look at this as functional embryology. And um, it's so good, but also, comma, the theory is that we used to s- sit on the ground, 
work on the ground, sleep on the ground, toilet on the ground. And that ground-based movement is one of the ways in which the body tunes itself. Hmm. So I can, I can either say, here are these 16 mobility drills for your hips, or I can say, why don't you actually spend some time in end range and do some long sitting? And then, and then when that gets uncomfortable, fidget into a high kneel position and then, and then sit Sazen and then, and then squat and then sit cross-legged. And in the course of 30 minutes or an hour of watching TV on the ground or answering your emails on the ground, you will have taken your hips through a huge range of motion and a whole Mm. bunch of movement variety. And by the way, your hips are, connected directly to your spine. And so if we're going to get to the bottom of the spine health, low back pain epidemic in this country, we're going to have to talk about the system that makes up that system. And it's a lumbar pelvis system. It's a lumbar femur pelvis system. It's a triad. The same way your shoulder, neck, and thoracic spine are a triad. The same way your hips, lumbar, and pelvis is. And so or you get the idea or the femur in there. So mm-hmm. the idea here is, well, instead of having to add things to people's environments, why don't we shape the environment to have a better outcome? And that really has been sort of the, the key. And my doctoral work was looking at barriers to adherence. And as you know, the dirtiest secret of medicine is people doing what they actually, both of us agree that they're going to do. It's sure. just very right. complicated. Sure. And we're suddenly duking it out with Netflix and all the fun <laughs> things that we can do. So you know, the idea here is if we can constrain the environment so that I have a better outcome, then a person doesn't have to think about it. You know, like right. we just say, don't bring your phone into the bedroom. And suddenly you don't have to make a decision whether you're going to check that text or that email because the phone's not in the bedroom. So if you can sit on the ground, because all of a sudden you're going to have to get up and down off the ground a whole bunch. And, then, and I don't have to program Turkish get-ups, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, walking more, I get you sleeping, and hopefully you're eating some whole foods and doing all that stuff comma, then we can have the next conversation about advancing your loading or helping you manage your sort of the musculoskeletal uh, information that may be perceived as pain, but may be perceived as loss of range of motion or loss of force production or stiffness in a tissue. All those things for me are the same. And, but those are my non-negotiables. Hey, let's see if you can get spend more time on the ground. Let's walk. Let's sleep. I love that. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's simple for any clinician to, to, implement in their practice but the other piece and and let me just say sorry to interrupt yeah easy to track easy to track yeah because what gets measured gets managed right oh i love that i love that but as part of kind of even what michael was saying with the pandemic and and just the pandemic of of disease Mm. in america it's often said sitting is the new smoking and we've had several physical therapists and kinesiologists phd types on here talking about sitting less and you actually wrote a book called desk bound where you address the dangers of the typical office worker. And could you kind of maybe talk about some of the concerns and some strategies for people who have desk-based jobs? I'm going to stand up while you answer this, actually. <laughs> Michael's just stood well, up. Well, I'm, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting cross-legged. So <laughs> there you go, in my chair. I'm not, I'm not on the ground, but I'm, I am on a functional ground. Okay. So that's Dr. James Levine, who is an obesity researcher, who coined sitting to new smoking. Cool. And what's, what's interesting is that more research, because you know, I was taken to task by the physical therapist. They did not like that message Ooh. because the me- message is, you know, hey, it's totally okay. Sit, you know, any movement solution is a, is a novel solution to a movement problem. I'm like, well, that's true. I mean, I, you know, I made you some toast, but I burned down the house, right? It's just a novel way to make toast. <laughs> yeah. It's really expensive that I can do. <laughs> right? And, and, Again, I think the message is, because I don't think people actually read the book, our message is, hey, you're designed to move, 
and then let's constrain your environment so we can pretend like you're actually going to be 110 years old someday. Mm -hmm. And then we have to do less of this restoration, you know, and, you know, if people ate all the organ meats, if people didn't eat processed carbohydrates, if people slept, if people ate 40 to 60 vegetables a day, you know, a year, like, you know, Kate Shanahan says, if we stopped eating industrial seed oils, guess what would probably happen to the microbiome? What would happen to, what would happen to our tissues? Like we, we would have to supplement a lot less, I suspect. Yeah, right? Right. Oh man. Well, why aren't we taking the same approach with our, with our movement behavior selves? And the key here is that, you know, the, if you, this is a really simple analogy that physicians can use to help their, help their patients understand what's going on is that if you put an orca in captivity, eventually the orca fin will fold over. And that huh. folded fin syndrome is a functional function of two things. One, the orca fin isn't loaded in the traditional way an orca fin would be loaded. It's not swimming. It's not hunting. It's not fighting. It's not playing. It's not being an orca. And so come back to mechanotransduction 101. If you want to have strong, healthy tissues, you better load them. So if you don't load the fin, fin doesn't get loaded. The fin becomes the collagen at the base of the fin becomes weaker and you change the environment of the orca. So the orca is spending a lot more time at the surface, just hanging out mm -hmm. in captivity versus doing all the things it would normally do. And that is really the metaphor for humans in our current modern iterative uh, lifestyle behaviors. We are doing things that for two and a half million years of evolutionary push got us to this point. And we've seen even, you know, the difference between you and I 10,000 years ago is not that great. Like I'm a little fatter and your femur's a little longer, but we're pretty much the same person. Mm -hmm. Same shoulders, same physiology, same sleep cycle, same needs for for you know all the all the things that we you know we need, and so the question then is you know is that sedentary behavior in line? And when we define sedentary behavior, let's be very clear: it's falling below one and a half metabolic equivalents. So as soon as you sit down, you fall below one and a half mets, hmm. and all of a sudden your physiology changes. Yeah. All of a sudden, a whole lot of interesting, you know, sedentary physiology becomes activated. And what we see is a downregulation of the, the human in terms of breathing, posture, being able to rotate. Um, you know, you're sitting on your hamstrings, just circulation in your legs. I mean, choose something. But if we just look at behaviors of above one and a half metabolic mets or below one and a half mets, suddenly you realize that, that if I set myself up to perch against a stool, and make my trunk balance the way it needs to balance and just keep myself up and fidget, then I, I'm going to be above one and a half metabolic equivalents as sedentary defined by Harvard. So what's interesting then, what we saw and are continuing to see is this mismatch between environment and organism, humans, you know, who we are, starting at a very early age with children who are basically engaged in these sedentary behaviors while their bodies are growing. And all of the early data suggest that kids are weaker and functional outputs are worse and their cores are weaker and they run a, a mile a minute slower than us. And check this out. When we went to high school, the chance of the three of us being diabetic was one in 4,000. Mm -hmm. We're talking about diabetes. Now it's one in four independent of socioeconomic wow. status. Yeah. Wow. So it doesn't matter how, how rich you are, how poor you are, what color of your skin is, one in four. And if you're a black woman, it's two out of three. 
If you're like teen X male, it's two out of three. And that's just a diabetes. We're not even talking about obesity. Right. So what I can say is, let me ask you how your environmental prescription is working for the youth of America and start to add in, you know, poor sleep load and all these other things. And you're saying, well, what can we control? Because how easy is it to have a conversation about nutritional quality with a family? It's really tough. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is so hard to change that. The only thing I can say is get all the cookies out of the house. That's literally what I say, right? Mm -hmm. Eat a vegetable, you know, more protein, eat a vegetable. (laughs) I mean, like, let's go. And, but it's really easy for us to say, well, hey, I'm going to work differently. I'm going to be in school differently. I can work on the ground or I can stand up and fidget and have a place to put my foot. And, and, and all of a sudden, I've constrained the environment. So I have two choices, work on the ground, work at an appropriate height desk where I can perch and put my foot up and lean and, and wiggle and do all the things I need to do. And all of a sudden, I don't have to think about all of these sort of downstream issues and implications. Right. Right. Well, and the inverse of that, uh, of the the sitting epidemic is kind of standing. And you talk a little bit about what you call the the skill of standing as it relates to posture. Mm. Um, So, I mean, many people know that they should be standing more, but maybe they're not doing it because they have some sort of ache pain. What do you what would you say about some basic tips around the skill of standing? Well, you know, I ate a vegetable once. I didn't like it. So, (laughs) you know, so. You know, um, Bill Clinton only slept four hours. What I would say <laughs> is um, your body's giving you information about needing to move. And so definitely standing still stasis is not the game. The game is to create as much movement richness in your environment as you can. So what we want to do is give people choices. So first and f- foremost, we're making the assumption that their standing work height is actually appropriate. And it's not. Most people have the desk way too low. So here's a simple rule. If you put your elbows by your side, when your hands parallel with the floor, I want your desk height at least one inch higher than that elbow height. And you want you like it a little higher and a little lower, depending on you and the special snowflake anthropometry of your arms. I believe you. Mm -hmm. But when we have gone in, and remember, our daughters went to the first, we converted a school in our public school system became the first all standing school in the world. We have 500 kids, we're in year eight, no kid sits down, and 100% of the kids know exactly the desk height they love. And nice. it changes based on the year, right? As they grow and things right. move, they, they get there a little bit higher. So suddenly what you realize is that it's not standing, you're actually leaning against the desk, you have your shoulders supported on the desk, which also creates a sort of flying buttress effect, the same kind of breathing patterns we see in COPD or when we're trying to help people brace with sprung pelvis or, or you know, postpartum, we're trying to basically help people create a stable shoulder pelvis structure. Well, then you've bellied up to the bar. Oh, it's a bar height thing, basically. Elbows mm-hmm. up in this position, support the upper bat, body. Then you've got to have a place to put your foot. And this is crucial because... Before the shutdown, there were these places called bars where people would go and drink beer and hang out with their friends. And the bartenders figured out a long time ago that if you gave a rail at the bottom and made it higher, people would lean and put their foot up. And all of a sudden, what? What would happen? They would sit and drink on the stand and drink all day long, right? So if we do the same thing at home, we take our this Captain Morgan pose and appreciate that as soon as I put one foot up, I also take a lot of the extension load out of the spine. And now I have a choice of putting my left foot up and my right foot up. And I can lean against the bars, the cheap IKEA bar stool. And then, you know, and 
some of the, the early biometric data is that, you know, a woman like my wife will burn an additional 100,000 calories a year standing versus sitting at her desk. I don't know if you appreciate how much ice cream that is to me at yeah. 230 pounds at six, two, like, I mean, that's a lot of ice cream, right. but the data out of Texas A&M, and this is crucial to understand is, um, what we, what we see, uh, Dr. Mark Benden of, of Texas A&M there has, has done this research on, uh, fifth and sixth graders. And over the course of two years, the kids who are at standing movement interventions had a Delta versus of upwards of eight body mass index points over their cohort who are at traditional desks. That's, yeah, wow. that's a reversal of, of obesity. Right. Yeah. And so what I appreciate is that when someone says, Hey, this is uncomfortable, I believe them. Yeah. And also why did you run a marathon on your first day out in your new Nike shoes? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. So how about we stand for, I don't know, 20 minutes a day. And then let's, let's do that for a week. And if you can make a small interventional change, and begin to build the tissue tolerance around this, it's pretty, pretty crazy what ends up happening when we start to rebuild those tissue tolerances. And by the way, you're probably gonna be fatigued at the end of the day, why? Because you're weak sauce and you're so weak and so detrained and so not used to using your body that you get this message from your body that you're tired, great. And at any time during the day when you wanna sit down, sit down. Yeah, well- You're not a prisoner. Yeah, and, and we love that initiative that you and Juliet started, that Stand Up Kids, where you got these stand-up desks for children. That's amazing, and we can link to that in the show notes. Um, can you tell us about your website and the programs you offer at The Ready State? Well, if I'm being completely transparent, I built this Ready State originally for me. <laughs> so 10 years ago, I started, uh, We this 10 years ago this September is when I made my first YouTube video. YouTube was a emergent nascent platform and the iPhone didn't have a video camera, but I decided to kind of put down on, on, on video, everything I, kn I knew about musculoskeletal health and self care for 365 days. Okay. And part of that was because I was seeing people in my clinic that had really simple problems that I couldn't believe they didn't understand how to solve. And so I was like, well, it was for me, it was a notebook. I was like, it was an easy way to, to talk to my patients and say, well, Mm -hmm. Go go to go to the mobility project number forty seven, you know, and it'll talk about quad stiffness and why that may be contributing to your knee pain, right? Mm -hmm. And and simple ways to assess it. And fast forward now, ten years of doing this and ten years of of working in very large data sets and very large small data sets, both. And what we realized is that um, we had. Uh, quite a bit of information that felt a little overwhelming, like the Library of Alexandria. People are like, hey, I just, I want a piece of information. I'm like, welcome yeah. to the Library of Congress. Good luck. <laughs> so last September, we streamlined and really, we try to do three things when someone comes to the town. So first of all, we try to say, hey, look, if you're in pain, let's give you some tools to see if we can change how your brain is perceiving what's going on with your tissues, right? And that's really what the, the message and the kind of language we use, mm -hmm. right? And, and our code is, let's desensitize you, right? And, and people are like, what's that mean? I'm like, well, you do it when you take ibuprofen and drink bourbon, right? That's desensitization, right? right? Self-soothing. So let's teach you to self-soothe in ways that can downregulate that, that, that threat message from your brain or change that brain tissue interaction because pain does not mean tissue damage. Mm -hmm. Second, 
we actually, and in there, we do help people understand red flags. Like, Hey, you know, night sweats, dizziness, fever, vomiting, nausea, mm-hmm. you know, the Ottawa rules, like you should go talk to a doc, right? We are really helping the people who are there and the coaches that use it to be able to be better allies to our medical professions. So we can strip away some of the low level non-skilled care interventions that should be addressed, you know, doing the thing that your grandma said you should do, mm-hmm. right? That's simple stuff. And simultaneously getting people to the medical professionals so that we can actually use our medical professionals in the way they should be used. Awesome. Second is that we say, okay, um, why, let's restore your range of motion. So this is, I think, a useful rubric for people. If I give you a movement intervention to change how you're moving, we call that a skill transfer exercise. So glute bridging is a good example, right? You're laying on your back, you push through the heels, and the idea is in that position, somehow that's going to make you walk better or deadlift better or help your back. That's a, that's a skill transfer exercise, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, crawling is a skill transfer exercise. Uh, heaving snatch balance in Olympics is a skill transfer exercise. Mm-hmm. So you can see that if I give you I's, Y's, and T's, those are largely skill transfer exercises. They're trying to make the body work. The other side of this, and what we have really tried to, to winnow down on because the skill transfer exercise, corrective exercise language can be very, very strange and non-context specific, and we see sometimes poor adherence is because uh, people want to suffer or whatever, is we have coined what I call move, move or, or position transfer exercises. So mobilizations, the reason we mobilize is to restore your position which means you should have an end goal and the goal is test retest. So if we're rolling on a ball or doing a, a distraction or, you know, we're doing some kind of intervention to change a tissue, it's to restore a movement. So one of the things that we see is that, you know, people are moving through their lives at 50% of their range of motion capacity. And they don't understand why their back is stiff and why they're power sucks on the, on the, on the bike. And we we are starting to see these things change. You know, I work with a young cyclist who will be our Olympian. Her name's Kate Courtney. And she maybe is one of the greatest athletes I've ever worked with, Hmm. but this is the kind of change that we're, we're talking about now. She called me up and said, Kelly, I'm putting 49% of my power through my left leg and 51% of my power through my right leg. That's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Ooh, imagine that. Imagine if the nuance people could be that nuanced about their mechanics. So, what do we do? Well, she didn't need more exercise and she definitely didn't need more work. She doesn't need more nutrition. She just had a simple range of motion restriction that took her eight minutes to fix by herself without seeing a physical therapist, without seeing a doctor. And, and the, the proof was in her function. Yeah. And hmm. the function is in this case is expressed in wattage. So the thing that we cared about was res- giving her her, hip extension back on our left side so that she can generate more wattage on the bike. Right. Yeah. And then finally we have ways of people being able to downregulate and enhance their adaptation to exercise or to the stress of the day. So humans only will heal and adapt at the rate limits of their environmental con- kind of constraints and their genetics. But most of us are not taking advantage of that, that we can, you know, improve sliding surfaces and neurodynamics and we can improve breathing and at the same time we can you know try to get some input into the brain through the vagus nerve and breathing and down regulate and we can hmm. we can tie those things in together so what we're trying to do is create a physical practice where people are like oh this is the continuum the same right. things that i do to help manage pain are the same things i can do 
to help restore my position and the same things I can do to help me manage stress or just do some soft tissue maintenance because it feels good. Yeah. Awesome. And it's kind of like the establishing, figuring out the root cause of the mobility issue, the power issue, similar to what we do with, you, you can take that from elite athletes all the way down to, to yes. the people who come into our office every day and we're trying to figure out the root cause of their disease. So I, I love that tie in. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, and, and disease is the right word, you know, because what we're talking about is the scale here, right? You know, if, if you are missing all the internal rotation of your shoulder, then it's difficult for me to really understand what's going on with your neck. You know what I mean? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just going to play whack-a-ball. And certainly, you know, Tordal will help, you know, right, right. a little at first, uh-huh. right? But it, in the long scheme, until I begin to appreciate that you are a complex systems biology person, right? I have to be get, you know, and, and what's nice is that when we, you know, we build a problem list just like everyone else. Yeah. Someone mm-hmm. comes and sees the problem. Hopefully we, we, we have some context about who they are and what they do, but ultimately I'm like, okay, it's, it's, I think it's one of these nine things that are contributing to this. Right. Mm-hmm. And what we, what ends up happening is oftentimes we get through that early threshold of pain, no pain after the first thing. Yeah. But we are still so far away from giving people back the full capacity of their bodies that we start to see when we improve these other aspects that the system becomes more anti-fragile and more durable. And, more, and then we start to see fewer kind of speed wobbles happen that people can take, you know, they can go for that big hike on the weekend or they can play with their kids on the ground and, or in the trampoline and not wreck their backs. I mean, that is a true statement from something that happened up the street with one of my neighbors, you yeah. know, like he's yeah. a, he's a, he's a lawyer. He sits at a desk 15 hours a day. He thought it would be good to pick up cycling in COVID and then spent an hour on the trampoline with his kid and didn't understand why his back, he thought he'd ruined his back. And I was like, right. well, it just turns out you're stiff uh-huh. and you were, you know, and your back had to pay the price. Yeah. Comma, there's nothing <laughs> wrong with your back. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> right. Well, this has been a blast, Kelly. We're honored that you came here and we're going to direct everyone to your uh, website, The Ready State, and we're going to link to your books in the show notes, Waterman 2.0, Becoming a Supple Leopard, Deskbound. Um, and we're just so grateful that you yeah. came with us. Thank you so much for spending this time. It is such a pleasure. And I just want to repeat what I tell everyone in our life who has the means. I'm like, you should have insurance that covers catastrophe so you can go to the ER and not wipe out your house, comma, and you better have a functional medicine doctor. Personalized <laughs> medicine Yay. is the future. It Thank is the you. future. Yeah, yeah. we Absolutely. agree with you. <laughs> Absolutely. But we're honored. Thank you, Kelly, for being here. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was fun. That certainly was. And very educational and at times profound. Yeah. Who would have thought that mobility would be the source of profundity? No, seriously. Things like pain is your body requesting to make a change. Yeah. Or you're only as old as your feet. Yeah. I'm really going to have to sit with this. I think that requires some unpacking. It certainly does. Which is... uh, a reason why you should go to the ready state mm-hmm. or investigate some of Dr. Kelly Sturrett's books uh, to get more insight into what this concept of mobility is really about. Because I think there's a lot to be had here as a clinician um, and a lot of work, a lot of service we can do to our patients. Yeah. It was a great interview and some great practical tips for clinicians on mobility. Yeah. With all that being said, what are we talking about next time? Next time on the lab report, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Seriously, again? I mean, I'm waiting. He still hasn't gotten back to you. I'm waiting. Call again. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, 
please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Got a mission. Yeah. Got a mission to outer space. To get Neil deGrasse Tyson. And that mission is Neil deGrasse Tyson. You never know. Thoughts become things. Just you got to want it. Oh, I want it. Okay.